Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's me and Christopher today. Chris, who have we got on today? Uh, morning, Alina. We have got uh, Anthony Burton, who is a historian and broadcaster. He's written a, a prolific number of books, including uh, The Canal Builders, Maritime London, Mines and Miners of Cornwall and Devon, which I need to get a copy of because it's for my father's birthday, since he lives down in Cornwall. So, Dad, if you're listening, this is what you're getting in August. And uh, Thomas Telford, master builder of roads and canals. And he's here today to talk to us about his book, London Transport, from the Romans to the present day. So, uh, hi, Tony. How are you doing? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you. I'm really interested in this, actually, because uh, I just asked Chris, can I take the piss out of the first question? And he said yes. So I'm going to laugh because we all know how, and even though in England, we've got a lot of listeners in England, but it doesn't matter where you are in the world, our roads are shit. They're just shit. How is it that the Romans can build better roads and a better road structure than we can today? I mean, I just it's mind blowing. Oh, well, the main reason was that they actually thought very carefully about it. Um, well, see, the traffic was different from ours. If you look at somewhere like Pompeii, where you can actually see a city road, it's actually amazingly well thought out because you've got animals pulling carts. Now, animals are very nice things, but they do tend to defecate rather a lot all over the place, so the roads were literally full of shit. <clears throat> so they had stepping stones to cross them, so they had pavements at the sides. So when you crossed the road, you didn't have to walk in all the muck, you could walk over the stepping stones. Out in the countryside, they built over an agar, agar or agar, I never know how it's pronounced, um, which has slightly raised surface, covered with stone, ditches on either side, had proper drainage. If you look at, for example, um, if you go up to um, Yorkshire, to North Yorkshire Moors, there's a whole section of Roman road. The quantity of it is so obvious because it's still there. You know, it's nearly 2,000 years later, and the damn thing still exists, looking pretty good. And the road outside my house is full of potholes. I've got to say, there are potholes bloody everywhere. Just absolutely. <laughs> and I really agree. I mean, people should really go to Pompeii and have a look at the road structure. When I was there last, way before COVID, it was um, it was very interesting to be able to see and how to step over and and actually physically. Because from a photograph, you can't really tell as well. You have to literally physically stand there and be able to experience how these road structures were actually built. Yes. They, they, I mean, the, the Romans were brilliant. We didn't have anything comparable to the Roman road in Britain until the late 17th century. 
that took us nearly 2,000 years to catch up on the Romans, which is rather a long time, considering, you know, that you'd have thought with the technology that would have been developing rather than going backwards. Because the, the Romans, it wasn't just the city roads. They needed to have a whole road complex to serve the city. Because outside the city, they had all the um, essentials for city life that had to be brought in. It was the civic centre for the country. So they were sending out messengers, sending out decrees of what had to be done in other parts of the country. There were legions to march up and down. So the roads were very heavily used. And London was, as it is today, a hub for Roman roads, for roads. What happened after the Romans, I mean, I know they didn't actually properly leave, but when the Romans ceased to be a power in Britain, what, what, why did it, the roads devolve over the next 700 years or so? Well, the, the, the country, of course, stopped being uh, an entity. It became a number of smaller kingdoms, you know, Wessex and so forth. Um, most of it didn't agree with each other. Um, so that, that places like London basically decayed to quite a large extent. The road system was forgotten. It was ignored, and you simply got what were in effect a series of tracks, often given hardly any paving at all. And it was the responsibility of local authorities to look after the roads, for which they they simply had um, a weird system whereby you had to have so many days a year of looking after the roads, and people were recruited into it. And um, the rich people simply paid someone else to take their place, and nobody was overseeing it, and uh, it chucked a bit of gravel into the holes and hoped for the best. Um, I mean, we were talking about potholes earlier, but there was an occasion in Stoke-on-Trent area where, of course, from medieval times, it was famous for, as potteries. It literally had potholes because they took clay for the pots out of the road. And there was a case reported in the 17th century in very bad weather that somebody fell into one of the potholes and drowned. Wow. So, you know, let's not complain about ours. It was worse then. I mean, medieval roads and indeed the late medieval and right through to the 17th century were atrocious. I mean, they really were very, very bad. You know, if you wanted to get about, the best way was to go by boat if you could. Uh, that sounds very much like the Medway roads. Med- Medway Council, <laughs> I think, have the same approach to, uh, <laughs> to road, road maintenance as the Middle Ages. <laughs> But we do get changes in the uh, in the 17th century. So um, how how do the roads improve? You've got the turnpike system. Um, obviously, one of the things you need to make a decent road was <clears throat> you need the money. And mm. one way to get that is to say, we will charge people for using the roads. Therefore, we'll get people to invest in road building and they'll get a return from the tolls that are paid by the road users, um, which was OK up to a point except that still there was not a, a really a very efficient way of road construction. Various people started to improve it. One of the first was a chap called John Metcalf of Knaresborough, who was an amazing man because he was totally blind, and yet he surveyed roads. He was an extraordinary character. And he, he had a, a wheel device for measuring distances, and he, he had an extraordinary ability just to check from his own movements where the going was good and where it wasn't. But... Probably the first big improvement, the French were actually better at it than us, but actually had a, a college for showing how to do it. But Thomas Telford was probably the first person to build a, a decent modern road by using graded stones. So he started off with firmer 
larger stones at the bottom had been gradually built up the surface, had proper drainage. It was labor extensive and very expensive. And eventually it was John McAdam who realized that actually you didn't need to have the foundation as long as you had compacted earth, you could lay your stones upon that. And you then got what was a halfway decent system. And of course you had, by that time, you had coaches using it. Although coaches were actually quite a modern invention. I mean, it was only, I think Queen Elizabeth was, no, Queen Mary was the first person in Britain to actually have a coach. Oh, wow. And it was basically a box hung up in a frame, um, very crude. But uh, by the 18th century, London was getting coaches galore. And um, <clears throat> there was a, a, a Felton's of Leather Lane in the East End were famous coach builders. Um, and suddenly you started to get coaches for hire in London, which greatly upset the watermen who had had all the tra all London traffic was on the river. And they were virulent complaints about the whole thing, saying basically, you know, why should everybody pretend to be an earl and ride around in coaches instead of keeping us in business? And um, so, the, the, but coaches came inevitably. And there was an attempt to bring it all into the modern world. And um, a gentleman by the member of Richard Trevithick, Cornish engineer, mining engineer, who built a steam vehicle in uh, 1801 in Cornwall, which had a very short life. Um, he tried it out on Christmas Eve and it stormed up Camborne Hill beautifully. And on Boxing Day, he took it to show it to a local grandee, ran it into a ditch, left it there simmering, while he and his mates went to the pub for a drink and forgotten to douse the fire. There was a loud bang and the world's first um, road carriage disappeared in a puff of smoke. Undeterred, <laughs> however, he decided to build a steam coach. Um, and he, the, the engineering of it was done in, in uh, Cornwall and then taken down to London, where our friend Felton, who'd been building coaches, built the coach for it. And it's an extraordinary <clears throat> vehicle because the actual steam engine had to be put under the coach. So the actual coach body was very high up. So it had very large rear wheels and a single front wheel, which was steered by means of a tiller by the driver. And um, he showed it off in London. Um, nobody was particularly interested and it didn't succeed. And uh, it's extraordinary that there aren't more accounts of this amazing vehicle in London at the time. But there are accounts from people who went in it. And um, one person complained it made him seasick. But interestingly, a chap called Tom Brogdon um, made a replica, a working replica. And for the anniversary, he took it down to Leather Lane and there was a plaque unveiled. And I was asked to give a little speech at the unveiling. And then we went to Regent's Park with this ridiculous looking vehicle and drove round in it in the company with a descendant of Richard Davidick's. Um, it was actually remarkably comfortable. And I thought, that, why didn't it catch on? It seemed so obvious and sensible, but there we are. So Trevithick realised that the thing, to, there was a problem with steering it. I think that was the biggest difficulty. Of course, he solved that by putting his steam engine on rails, started the railways instead. We're going to come to the railway system. 
in a moment. Okay. But before we come to the railway system, let's talk about uh, a little bit more about the London roads, but a road in a floaty sort of sense, aka uh, bridges. So, for example, London had one bridge for about what five hundred years. How did oh, all of this change? For was more it more than, than that? that? For more than that. I mean, the Romans built the first bridge. Can you tell us which one that was? Well, it was a Roman bridge. I mean, it doesn't exist. It got fairly ages ago. The first, the one we know most about is is the old London Bridge, which was built in, by the Normans, <clears throat> and lasted right through to the 18th century. And that was the one which had um, houses on either side, multiple arches, and it was an absolute menace, basically, <laughs> for anybody on the river, because as you can imagine. The Thames is a fast-flowing tidal river. So if it's being constricted by lots of arches, when it goes through the arches, it's going at a hell of a lick. And uh, to travel from the downstream upstream against the tide was virtually impossible. You more or less had to go with the tide. Um, so it really did, London Bridge divided the river into two quite separate parts. Downstream was where big ships could come in the Pool of London. Upstream, there were the, only barges and small boats. But there was no other bridges. And there was great opposition to building bridges, um, largely, of course, from the watermen, because they realised if there were bridges, they didn't have to, um, you know, sort of, um, they wouldn't have their customers. There's a funny story about the watermen, actually, slightly rude, but I hope you don't mind. Um, because they, they used to shout out um, on the bank, oars, oars, and the Frenchman thought that's a, 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 pet or a penny or something, you know, to cost them. And he thought, well, that's brilliant. That's the cheapest I've ever come across in Europe. And he realised that it was oars were things you row a boat, not ladies of a disreputable reputation. <laughs> anyway, so the first, the first bridge was a Putney was the first bridge after the London Bridge. And it was a wooden construction, and it joined two main roads, which were not opposite each other on the bank. So it had to have a kink in it. So it was a, a dog-leg bridge. <clears throat> and then gradually, of course, we, we got stone bridges. We had suspension bridges, rather splendid ones like Hammersmith. And the, really, the 19th century was the great age of bridge building. And you, you got all the great bridges. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Hammersmith was one of the greatest ones. Um, there was a, uh, there was also um, a suspension bridge at Charing Cross, um, but it was removed when they built the, built the railway at the same point, and the present Charing Cross rail and pedestrian bridge was built. But the, the chains were taken away. As, um, Brunel had never finished the famous Clifton suspension bridge. It was unfinished when he died. So the chains were taken away from Brunel's Clifton Suspension Bridge, which he designed, from, sorry, the Charing Cross Bridge, which he designed, and were used for the present Clifton Bridge. So Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol has chains originally on Charing Cross Bridge in London, the one that has now been demolished. Oh, wow. Um, I, I, I just can't get over the fact that Putney Bridge was <laughs> built with a kink because they misjudged it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they didn't misjudge it as such. It was, it was really, they're trying to join two, two roads. <laughs> Building skew bridges is quite difficult. <laughs> but it, yeah, 
looks ridiculously flimsy. I've just got this image of these two engineers stood on two half of the bridge with a gap between them. <laughs> what are we going to do now? <laughs> but um, coming, coming but back to the rail, there were no, they could never be bridges below uh, London Bridge because of the shipping. Mm. And the only way to get a crossing there was tunnelling. And of course, that, that was one of the big stories because it was a huge adventure in a way. Um, Trevithick again comes into this one because he was invited to construct a tunnel under the Thames, Rotherhithe. And um, he said to a friend, saying, This will be money easily earned. One of the great famous last words, you know. <laughs> And of course, there was no way of surveying what the bed of the Thames was like. And they basically, they got far too near the surface. It flooded and the whole project was abandoned for some years. And then it was restarted with a different engineer, Mark Brunel, who was an he had come over from France. He'd, he'd left revolutionary France because he was a royalist. And he'd gone to America, where, among other things, um, he produced a design for the White House, which proved too expensive to build. Um, but anyway, he came back to Britain and set up in business and engineer. And he also set out to build a tunnel under the Thames, for which he devised a very good system, which was um, the shield. It was basically a huge metal structure with compartments in, inside of which people could work and they could. Excavate a certain amount of earth, put it backwards to somebody, and to the spoil goes backwards into the tunnel. They excavate, they put up boards, and they slowly advance, and they, they moved a bit at a time, and it had a, a metal top to keep people safe. Um, that flooded again, <laughs> but he was able to complete it. Originally, it was intended to be used for carriages, it was going to be a spiral path down into the tunnel from at, at either end um, and there would be there were twin tunnels one for the one mission the other but it was actually only ever used for pedestrians and it wasn't a huge success until the 20th century when it was used for part of the London Underground where it still is and years ago I went down at three o'clock in the morning to do a radio piece um, with the fluffers the fluffers who go down after the trains have gone to remove all the rubbish from in between the tracks. And it was very fascinating to see this um, whole structure, which was still in use, and it was basically as it had been constructed in the early uh, 19th century. <clears throat> so that was the uh, the story of the tunnels, which was, and of course there was, we've had subsequent bridges, um, including the famous Wobbly Bridge, <clears throat> And of course, now we've got one, the first one downstream, we've got the um, circular motorway bridge. So would it be fair to say, though, that with the advent of the railway, it revolutionised transport within the city? It certainly revolutionised the need for transport in the city because it, it made travel into the city so much more important. There were more people pouring in. Um, London was quite the, interesting. I mean, it was 18, I'm just 1833, 
it got its first railway, which was the London to Greenwich. It's an extraordinary thing because it went over a built-up area. So decided instead of trying to knock down thousands of houses, they'd build a viaduct all the way along the route. And it has, wait for it, 878 arches. And it was required an estimated 60 million bricks to build it. And that was London's first railway. But the, the big ones that mattered were the ones that came in from the south and the north, the west, the east. <clears throat> you know, that the first major one was the London and Birmingham, which created havoc in the London streets because it came in down, down a deep cutting. So for time, Camden Town was divided by this deep cutting with just planks across it. It was described by Dickens as being an absolute shambles with houses leaning over and chaos all round. And we don't know it now because it's um, long been, you know, covered, uh, coped with. But at the time, it created a certain amount of chaos. And it arrived at uh, the, the first really major London station at Euston, which was actually not a particularly imposing one because it had a very imposing entrance because it had the famous Euston Arch which was demolished, I think, in the 1960s on the grounds that it didn't look modern enough, apparently, um, which seemed a great shame. And, of course, there was a lot of people complained about it, but it's gone and that's the end of it. Oddly enough, at the Birmingham end, they had an equally grand arch, and that remains, but they've got no station. So Euston has a station and no arch, <clears throat> and Birmingham has an arch and no station. Um, then... All the great London stations gradually began to appear. And obviously, a lot of the people were coming in now from on the London was expanding, they were coming in from the suburbs, and they needed good transport to get them to their workplaces. One answer, of course, was the bus before the was an, and the omnibuses were originally horse drawn. Um, the Schiller beer was famous. There was also um, a gentleman called Hancock introduced the steam bus. But the big breakthrough came, really, with the Metropolitan Railway, um, which was begun in um, 18... Well, I've got the date here. 1882. And that was... Uh, if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. The first underground railway. Um, but it was unlike our present underground railways. It had to be operated by steam locomotives. Now, obviously, a steam locomotive in a tunnel that led permanently is going to cause a lot of problems. So what they did was they had special locomotives built, which were said to consume their own steam, which basically meant that instead of the gases just going straight up out of the chimney, they went through a pipe into a condensing uh, system on the locomotive itself. And that became the, the main way of doing the underground. The Metropolitan Railway spread out considerably, right up until the arrival of the district line, when a new form of transport had been developed in Germany using electricity. And originally, the district line was going to be run by means of hauling things along by a cable, um, which wouldn't have been a huge success. So instead, they had to decide an electric motor would be the thing, electric locomotive to pull it. Um, and, of course, there was no grid in those days. They had to build their own power station. So it's still something that's relied on steam power because you had steam engines to work the generating system to provide the power for the district line. And they decided that because there was nothing to see in the tube, it didn't basically need to have windows. Um, so the carriages had... Um, very small slits at the top and a sort of padded interior. And they were known as padded cells. And people absolutely hated them. I mean, they were terribly claustrophobic. So although there was nothing to see, they decided they had to change it all over and put in large windows. And that's what we have today. And we look out of our tube windows and we don't see anything really except a bit of until we get to a station. Um, and uh, But at least we feel it bit more comfortable agreed i think it's a bit like when you're on a plane as well those little yeah. windows make a huge difference that you're not in a big tin box flying in the middle of the sky where when you're up there you just see a bit of blue or some clouds or black if it's out in the middle of the night but it still gives you that sense of not being stuck and so claustrophobic at the end of the day absolutely <laughs> i mean the, the tube system has, has you know is probably I mean, now, you know, major cities everywhere have the, their metros, their underground, U-Bahn or whatever it may be. But it was pioneered in London. This was the, the world's first successful underground railway. But the, the planning of the tube, though, was a, it's a nightmare of different companies and personalities, though, isn't it? There's lots of clashing. Yeah. The, I mean, until you've got a sort of... A, a, um, an agreed system whereby there was London Underground and everybody wanted to do things their own way, which is always the way of things. And I mean, it's, it's rather like the railway companies when um, arriving in London. I mean, when Brunel arrived with his seven-foot gauge, nobody else got four foot eight and a half. Um, 
but it didn't seem to matter at one time but until you started to want to travel around the country and you had to keep swapping from one type of train to the other and eventually of course the uh, the broad gauge disappeared at the end of the 19th century interestingly if everybody had agreed with the broad gauge we'd have had a different system altogether if Brunella got in before George Stevenson we'd all be traveling in much wider coaches and be whether would it be better or not I don't know it'd be different anyway might be a few extra seats. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about that, my uh, my friend went to uh, New York for the first time a couple of months ago, and he was astounded with the way they have their rail trains, and they have two floors, and they're big and they're wide, and there's much more places to sit. And I was like, yep. what do with that on the London Underground, you know? <laughs> yes, well, nice. I must say, travelling in America... Um on double-decker trains is rather good fun. I, I did that from um, San Francisco to Sacramento recently. So I'd be like a little boy when I was sitting on top, top of the top deck. There was another reason. It was the bar was up there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I find it very interesting how even to today the, the tube system is still moving forward. I mean, for me, the most amazing thing was is having the overground system being put in because I lived in Hackney. Yeah. And in the part of Hackney that I lived in, we had nothing. We The only option we had was a bus. Yeah. And it was a good 25-minute walk to the nearest tube station. And when they opened up, for example, Dalston, Dalston Junction, it that really opened up London, especially yeah. east, <clears throat> eastern parts of London. Yes, I mean, North London was always better to have the tubes than South London. Um and of course, I mean, you, you, you've now got um, amazing things like the, um, the Dockland Light Railway with driverless trains, which are, you know, still slightly alarming to some people. <laughs> Not when you're sitting at the front, though. That's the yeah. fun part. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And of course, it wasn't until the 20th century that we had escalators for going up and down. I mean, if you imagine, um, there still some stations have lifts instead of escalators, but of course, that. Uh, you can't get very many people on. So originally you have to, on the original lines, you have to long staircases to go up and down. And people weren't sure if they were safe or not. So to test it, they used a man with a wooden leg. They reckoned <laughs> if his leg didn't get caught in it, nobody else's would. I can see the logic, though. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I know it's not necessarily going, it's not going anything to do with London, but um, there's a, where I live, we've got the Struve Railway Tunnel which goes under the chalk hills and yeah. it used to be a canal uh, a canal tunnel and when they after before they converted it to a rail canal rail tunnel the, they said well, we want to see how strong the roof is so a local major i think he must have been in the royal engineer or something said don't worry i've got an idea so he took a boat with a small cannon in it and they were firing <laughs> it at the roof and the cat of the thing went, yeah no it's perfectly safe <laughs> Okay, let's let's move away from the cannon firing major. The one thing that I'm so I live in Warsaw. In Warsaw, we've got a decent public transport system, pretty decent. But the one thing that I do love about Warsaw is we have trams. Yes, but they were phased out. I mean, there are just there are a few tram lines left, like pretty south, deep south of London. But why would they phased out and the tube succeeded? Well, I mean, don't forget the tube preceded the tram. I mean, the horse-drawn tram, which the first tram was a horse-drawn. Um, but again, it, you know, the, the early um, tubes, I mean, there's two things. One, 
city streets are very crowded. You think of the number of people who can get into a tube train compared with a tram. There is a very good case for saying stick them underground, otherwise the whole place is going to come to a standstill. <clears throat> um, but it was really where it, the, the tram system really worked best when the when once you had the electric overhead or originally um, in the road um, line. Um, but that that wasn't a great success because it it was a, an obstacle. I mean, it, trams really became pop sensible when you had the overhead connection. Um, and of course, the other alternative was the trolley bus, which didn't require the rails, but could still use the overhead system. And the, the trolley buses continued in London what, until the 1950s, I think. I think when I first came to London, they still had the, the occasional trolley buses around. And then it gave way, of course, to the, the famous London bus. That's a bit disappointing. I'd love to have a go on a trolley bus. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it was. Uh, I mean, now, of course, it it would be so much more sensible because you know now now that we know about pollution and global warming and fossil fuels, <clears throat> you know, everywhere, trams and um, trolley buses are coming back in. Um, I was um, staying with my son just outside Nottingham, Beeston, and. Uh, we went into the city centre in the evening on the tram. Very efficient it was too. Uh, sorry, did you say that was Nottingham? Nottingham, yeah. All oh, right, uh, my sister lives up there. Uh, next time I go up, I'll have to. Uh, might suggest we go and do that. She's <laughs> think I'm a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but, but talking about motor cars and things, can you tell us about the fortunes of the London Bentley Company? Yeah, I mean, W. O. Bentley. Um, he he was one of the early enthusiasts for the motor cars. I mean, the motor car came in. I mean, the first internal combustion engines to be used for transport were from Germany, with which was Benz and Daimler. I know we always say Daimler, but anyone I went to a Daimler place, I discovered it's actually called Daimler. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, obviously, we started importing motor cars, and. Bentley was a huge enthusiast for racing cars as, as a driver, taking part in contests. And um, his career was interrupted by the First World War. And he obviously went off to serve as an engineer, actually in the Navy. And at the end of the war, he was awarded £8,000 to set up in business in Cricklewood to manufacture cars. And what he wanted to do was to, first of all, was to build racing cars, of course, for himself, but also to um, build really fast cars for the general public. And he, he introduced his eight-cylinder car, which was um, capable of speeds of 100 miles per hour in the 1920s. And uh, unfortunately, the market for expensive sports cars slumped with the Wall Street crash. Um, people just couldn't afford that sort of luxury. And he was bought up by Rolls-Royce. So his company, the, the Cricklewood company, closed down and the whole works moved to the Rolls-Royce factory at Crewe. The one London, I suppose the most successful London firm was probably Vauxhall, which, of course, 
as its name suggests, was originally in Vauxhall. And they, they were, they continued for some, a long time, but they too, of course, moved out of London and uh, London manufacturing of cars really came to an end then. Let's switch from cars to something a little bit faster, which is aviation industry. Yeah. So in, in London, I'm going to say London in quotation marks because it's not all directly in London. We have five airports. That's not counting. If you really want to be pedantic, count South End. That makes six. Not that we want. That's too far away out of London. But how does that? Uh, how does London evolve with the aviation industry? Does it affect it in any way? It's bound to affect it in some ways, if only because airways help to international travel. I mean, the aviation industry, of course, the biggest effect of the aviation industry was probably detrimental in the sense that um, bombing, you know, the aeroplane made places like London vulnerable. Um, mm. and before, if you wanted to attack London, you had to invade England. Now, as early as the First World War, we started getting air raids with the Zeppelins coming over. They were perhaps not as efficient, but of course, as we all know, in the Second World War, of course, bombing raids on London would have a devastating effect. But the civil aviation, I think, is what we're talking about here, um, began really in quite a small way, because up until the First World War, I mean, planes were not passenger planes. I mean, you know... Maybe you could get one person in them. And, you know, people like Blario flying the channel was amazing. But war changes things. With a war, you're, you're going to develop new technologies very rapidly because somebody else is going to be doing the same thing on the opposite side. So you started getting the bomber being built, which could take a much heavier payload. And they were the basis for the first passenger planes. And London got its first very basic airport down in Croydon. And um, it became very, I mean, obviously, it was very elite. You know, flying was expensive. Very few people did it. Um, the planes couldn't go very far. I mean, you, you couldn't do transatlantic flights in those days, but you could hop across to the Channel fairly easily. And you could travel the world, but you had to do it in a series of hops. But as planes got bigger, the runways got bigger, the complex needed to control them got bigger. The control rooms got more sophisticated and everything changed enormously. And now, I mean, it's hard to imagine um, a major city that doesn't have international airports of all shapes and sizes. And some of which, of course, are, are quite, I mean, mostly they're fairly boring places to be. And fairly, you know, you just have to hang around there, wait for hours before you get on your plane and um, then queue up to go through all the formalities to get off the damn thing and collect your luggage and what have you. Um, the one airport, I think, in London, which is actually marvellous, at least was last time I did it, is City Airport. Because I, I flew in there from um, Antwerp recently. And um, we came up the Thames. We flew past City Airport, very low, looking out the window. You know, it's saying about not being able to see anything out the window. You get a wonderful view of London flying up. We turned around somewhere around about Westminster, came back, as if we were going to be doing a 9-11 demolishing buildings in Canary Wharf, and then suddenly swooped down to this ridiculous landing strip on the Isle of Dogs and got off the plane, luggage was there, picked it up and walked out. Wonderful. 
what every airport should be like. I agree. I actually got uh, evacu- evacuated. Oh, I forgot what the word is. Um, repatriated. That, say that again? Repatriated. Repatriated. That's the word I was looking for. I got repatriated from the city airport back to Poland during COVID because uh, the Polish government sent planes out all around the world to go and right. collect its citizens. And I've never used City Airport. I mean, predominantly, I've always used Heathrow, Luton or Stansted. I've no other need to use other airports. And it was just amazing. It was in, out, bish, bash, bosh, done. I was like, well, I need an excuse to be using City Airport. Absolutely. (laughs) I'd probably hate City Airport. I'm all right flying. It's the landing that I don't Mm. like, you know, looking out the window and seeing the ground getting closer towards towards me i'm, I'm not, a, not a fan of that bit um <laughs> i was on the last time i was on a plane that this kid looked out the window i said look mummy the ground said yes we're getting closer to it and i just wedged myself between the seats i have to tell you that um i i was uh i did, I did national service because I'm, I'm ancient and um so i was actually a navigator in the RAF. So i was air crew I was flying almost every day. <laughs> that sounds actually like good fun. <laughs> yeah, except you, if you happen to have, like being a member of the, yeah, the Air Force, which I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed the flying. I've, I've tried all sorts of flying now. I've done, my most recently one was um, my 80th birthday present was lessons flying a microlight. Oh, wow. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> See, that would really worry me. <laughs> yeah, if you don't like flying, I don't recommend it. <laughs> There's nothing. <clears throat> it's well like filming from a helicopter, um, mm. where they take the doors off. Oh yes. <laughs> but you, you're, you're dangling in from a, from like a sleeping bag from a hang glider. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you're sat there with sort of you know, um, when the when the helicopter banks, you know, you're sort of looking down. There's a lot of air underneath you. <laughs> So I have a massive fear of heights. I can't stand heights at all. I will not go on top of buildings. But it being in planes, helicopters, all of that doesn't bother me because I'm at a certain certain height. And it just, for me, it just doesn't, it seems like being it's... being height then. It, yeah, it doesn't seem real. So I'm I'm pretty, pretty okay with that. But standing quite high up on a building, no thanks. <laughs> what kind of uh, transport innovations have occurred in London since World War II? Um, I, I mean, I suppose the you know the fact that the underground systems developed. I don't think London's actually made that many changes. I mean, obviously the tube lines have been extended. I mean, the Victoria Line was the first new one to come out of the Second World War, um, and the, the need to do something about the congestion. <clears throat> electric vehicles were obviously going to become vital. One of the things that's changed, of course, was the loss of a monopoly by the famous black cabs. Mm. Um, you know, for a time, it you know that at least if you got a black cab, the driver had a knew where he was going. Yes, I had to go to I had to go to a a wedding. Well, he was the best man as well. And um, friend said, "Oh, there's a very good um, mini cab service." And uh, I got in this mini cab and gave him the address of where we were going up Finchley Road for church. Anyway, he drove off. He didn't seem to have a great deal of English. And he said, church. And I said, well, I agree it's a church, but it doesn't have to be on the Finchley Road. <laughs> we are nowhere near the Finchley Road. 
we are in a church, but it's not the one I want to go to. I said, um, so I finished up going to direct him. So, um, but so the Black Cabs, when they, they did the knowledge, mm. was one of the fa most famous London cabs we haven't mentioned at all is the Hansom Cab. Yeah. The Hansom Cab? The Hansom Cab. Yeah. You know, the, the one that turns up in every period film about London, especially if it's Sherlock Holmes. I, I was going to say Always Sherlock jumping into a Hansom Cab with Watson to go somewhere. Yeah, the, the chase in um, uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles where they're following uh, Stapleton around London in Hansom yes. Cab. Like, yes, come, 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 my good man, follow that cab. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it, it, it was... For the for the ninety for the Victorians that was the London vehicle, and it's a, it's a very interesting. It's interesting because it's only two wheeled. Yeah, you don't sort of recognise that so much. I just had to Google this, so I'm now looking at one that looks pretty fun. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? And the driver sat at the back. You had a little trapdoor in the roof so you could communicate with him. And um, you had a ap leather apron to wrap over your legs when you're sitting in the front. And it was a one-horse cab. And it was entirely successful. And they've got, they've got some obscure laws that still technically occur, got work on black cabs in that they're all meant to have a spare bale of hay in the boot. And, <laughs> and if you really need the toilet, you're allowed to urinate on the back wheel of a taxi. <laughs> I'm sorry, Originally what? On it, it, when it was handsome cabs, you were allowed to, if you were caught short, you were allowed to urinate on the back wheel of the, of the taxi, uh, of the cab. But and um, because the law was never repealed, it kind of applies to black cabs. Yeah, I think returning to the Romans with the handsome cab, um, it was just one of many, many horse-drawn vehicles. Of course, I mean, there were horse-drawn drays for breweries. There were carts bringing material, bringing in all kinds of stuff. Um, and, of course, the problem of muck on the roads still existed. So that was looked after by crossing sweepers, who were children who would sweep um, a clean path across the road for you in exchange for a small tip. Not a very enjoyable task for a young child, but obviously it was they were from the very poorest families, and it was a source of income for them. Uh, a job's a job, I suppose. Job's a job, yeah. Yeah, so Tony, we've that's been this has been really interesting. I think we I can't believe we've covered almost two thousand years worth of history in about forty five minutes or so. Would you be um would you mind reminding everyone the title of your book and where they can get it, please? Yes, it's published by Pen and Sword. I've no idea what it's called. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, the history the history of London transport from Rome to present day. Well done, well, I'm glad somebody knows it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, available shortly, and we'll we'll get it put into our into our history uh, history hack online bookshop as well. That way, um, we get a tiny slice of any money. Uh, you get a, you, you get a larger slice of the money, and, well, I hope so. uh, and then Amazon Amazon can't use it for building their own um, transport network. <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome to the Amazon tube. <laughs> <laughs> if Royal Mail can have one, why not Amazon? Why not? Tony, thank you much. again. Okay, thanks a lot. Then, bye bye. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time. Join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop 
supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.